American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Now, the expansion of cotton production in the U.S. depended on the expansion of slavery. And this meant the actual movement of enslaved people. And in some cases, that movement was accomplished by enslavers who were picking up stakes, pulling up stakes, and moving to Alabama or Mississippi and starting a cotton plantation. Maybe they had once run a rice plantation or a tobacco farm or something like that. And maybe they took their slaves with them. And we can find examples of that. The, but the majority, the majority of enslaved people who move south and west are moved by professional slave traders. And if we look at them for just a minute, we can see this very interesting fact uh, that Slave traders who seem like figures out of the ancient world, um, out of uh, some sort of pre-capitalist past, are in fact, if anything, the most capitalist uh, entrepreneurs operating in the 19th century South. Slave traders were businessmen. They paid constant attention to supply and to demand. They kept close accounting records of profit and loss closer than, than planters typically, in fact. Uh, they understood how one market was related to a different market, how the market uh, for the slaves uh, that they were buying in Maryland was related to the market in Mississippi, and how the cotton market in Liverpool or New Orleans was related to that market as well. And they were constantly securing credit, paying back debts, uh, calling in debts. They were, in fact, modern businessmen in virtually every sense, except one. Uh, the commodity that they traded was human beings. And we believe that human beings cannot be commodities. But it was true that slave traders did everything they could to commodify people. They graded them, number one men, number two men, number three men. They sold them grouped by height, by age, and by gender. They dressed those groups in the same outfits, trying to suggest to the people who were buying other people that the people who were getting sold were uniform commodities. And they did a pretty good job, if you judge by their success and their profitability. By the 1830s, the slave traders who had emerged as the most important figures in a trade that linked the Upper South to the Lower South, particularly through the, the Central Emporium of New Orleans, they had emerged as some of the wealthiest Americans. People like Austin Woolfolk of uh, Baltimore, John Armfield uh, of the Washington, D.C. area, Rice Ballard of Richmond, and Isaac Franklin of Tennessee and New Orleans. These individuals uh, were at the peak of their profession and among the most important economic figures in the South and throughout the United States. They worked closely with the biggest national banks. They were special, specially uh, friendly with the, uh, the Bank of the United States, which was very important to their flow of credit. And they were very important to the planters uh, of the Southwest, obviously, since they were the main suppliers of labor. In the early 1830s, the firm in which Isaac Franklin, John Armfield, and Rice Ballard were partners moved several thousand people every single year from Virginia and Maryland to Louisiana and Mississippi. 
and they sold them at rising prices. In about 1829, a young man, let's say 19 or 20 years old, apparently in good health, would have sold for about $600 in New Orleans. By 1835 or 1836, the same young man would have sold for about $1,600, or about a 250% increase in price. Rises in price were typically linked to not just a rise in cotton prices, but a rise in cotton productivity. In fact, it, if you look at a graph over time, you can see that it's not cotton price and slave price that track together. It is the expected value from the yearly labor of one slave. Now remember, that labor was increasing in quantity every year, typically. That times the price of cotton was what tracked with the price of slaves. Now, of course, this was a business that demanded a huge amount of credit. And as I said before, uh, that firm, Franklin, Ballard, and Armfield, but other firms as well, were closely linked, linked to some of the most important banks uh, in the United States at that time. And in fact, through those banks, they were linked to suppliers of credit worldwide. Through the banks of the United States, the South, the banks of the South and, and the, the National Bank of the United States, international investors were in fact closely linked to the domestic slave trade in the United States. Now, it was fashionable for some to look at slave traders as scapegoats, uh, to say that they were different from planters, that they weren't accepted into polite society, but the fact that slave traders were, if you were, a vehicle uh, or uh, middlemen through which credit was channeled uh, into the hands of slave sellers and slave buyers and through which enslaved people were moved from one part of the South to another. You can already see uh, that that claim is an illusion. People around the Western world were invested in what slave traders were doing. And you can also see it's an illusion because slave traders really were accepted into polite society in the South, especially uh, the, the wealthy ones. Isaac Franklin married the daughter of a planter, retired, uh, and uh, bought a big plantation uh, that is today actually the site of Angola State Prison in Louisiana. Uh, Rice Ballard went on to buy over 10 plantations and become uh, and go on to continue to be one of the wealthiest men in the United States through the 1850s. John Armfield uh, also uh, married a wealthy woman uh, and ended up starting uh, the University of the South, or Sewanee. So all of these individuals were deeply linked to elite society, not just in the South, but throughout the world, throughout the Western world. So slavery is expanding, and many people are taking profit from that process. Many people are taking a share of it, and they would hope, or they did hope, to continue to take their share of it. And it looked by the 1830s as if that was going to be possible. Textile factories are booming in Manchester and in Lowell. Merchants are experiencing greater and greater sales for not only textiles, but other products around the world. The things that have been learned through the creation of textile factories are spilling over into the creation of new kinds of factories and new kinds of machines, including steamboats and trains. A new financial network has been constructed that links London, Manchester, Liverpool, New York, Philadelphia, New Orleans, and every single cotton field in the South, in a way, all together. And many, many people are profiting. And they think they're going to be able to continue to do so. 
as long as there aren't too many fluctuations in price and as long as there aren't so many financial innovations uh, that bubbles are created that might bring about a financial crisis. The only possible thing that those who are most deeply invested in can think of that might bring about an end to this process might be the resistance of enslaved people themselves, such as happened in the 1790s in Haiti, when the first system of sugar production and the first system of slavery was brought down by the resistance of enslaved people themselves. So let's turn to taking a look uh, at how that worked in the United States and whether that was a realistic possibility for bringing down this growing financial and economic network. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank you.